it really does engage a lot of your senses because it has like the crackling of a fire. You have the the waves kind of lapping in from the lake. So, you know, if you could picture yourself on the shores of the lake during the summer and netting and, and fishing, you know, the sounds of nature. Hello, welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo, Miigwech, for joining us. Native Lights, if you don't know already, is more than a podcast and radio show. At its core, it's a place for Native folks to tell their stories. Each and every week, we have captivating conversations with all these great guests from a whole lot of different mm-hmm. backgrounds. We're talking musicians, artists, all those different types of people. They have a wonderful mix of passions and gifts, and we talk to them how they share those gifts with their community, centering around finding purpose in our lives and amplifying Native voices, which we are continuing to do this week. Leah, Hoa, what's going on? How are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Um, As you know, we had a dog named Coda who passed away months ago, and I'm getting the itch to go find another another dog. What what kind of what kind of dog? Uh, I know you you like the big floppy-eared dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another big day. dog. A, a, yeah. a, a good dog for the country who can stay outside. Yeah, but I'm getting the itch. I'm looking around. I even had a dream about getting another pet. We definitely love our dog relatives on the show mm-hmm. here, especially when we get some unexpected guests. I know, um, I love that. <laughs> Pivoting from that. <laughs> I'm excited as always to speak to our guest today, Travis Zimmerman. Travis Zimmerman yeah. is the site manager for the Mille Lacs Indian Museum and Trading Posts. Uh, one of my favorite places to go kind of in between Grand Rapids and the cities. Um, Travis's family is from the Crane Clan of the Grand Portage Band of Lake Superior, Chippewa. Who's you, Travis? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Like Leah said, my family's from uh, Grand Portage, from the Crane Clan. I'm the site manager of the Malaxa New Museum and Trading Post. And I am joining you today from my home in Deerwood, Minnesota. So, Travis, is there anything that's been on your mind lately that you'd like to talk about? Anything that's like bubbling to the surface? Well, there's a couple of things coming up at the museum that okay. we got going on that I'd like to let people know and make them aware of. Sure. Well, how about we start out with then just hearing a bit of an overview of the Mille Lacs Indian Museum and Trading Post? Yeah, so the Mille Lacs Indian Museum and Trading Post is part of the Minnesota Historical Society. We have one of uh, 26 uh, historic sites throughout the state of Minnesota been a historic site since 1960. As you know, we tell the story of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe there. We have a wonderful Four Seasons room that takes visitors through the kind of the cycles of the seasons and typical, um, you know, Ojibwe uh, living during those seasons. And uh, then we have a main exhibit area that really uh, ties in the contemporary story of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe. We have a trading post where we uh, buy, sell, and trade American Indian art, work with uh, uh, a lot of different artists, not just 
Ojibwe, um, and not just artists from Minnesota, but we really cast a pretty wide net and try to uh, do business with artists from all over the United States and uh, and Canada. We're open year-round, uh, Wednesdays through Saturdays at both the museum and the trading post. We do a lot of uh, school groups. We get a lot of, uh, this is especially in the fall here in October, we get a get a lot of educational programs that come up and when kids come to visit we do uh, different educational lesson plans for them mostly geared towards elementary students but we also work with uh, some junior and, and senior high students as well yeah we have monthly workshops we got different special events going on throughout the year seasonal demonstrations so we just really uh, have a lot going on there so since you mentioned it i, I... I got to talk about the Four Seasons Room a little bit. Like that was one of the bigger exhibits that struck me as a kid. I believe I went uh, went up there when I was probably elementary age. And I knew it's been around there for a while because of that. But just looking, doing some prep for the show, I saw that it's been around in some form since 1964. Um, could you just talk a little bit about the popularity about the exhibit just a little bit and how it's changed over the years? Yeah, so I would say the Four Seasons Room is definitely our main attraction. It's it's kind of the wow factor of the museum. On on most of our uh, surveys that we do with the public, and also surveys we do with teachers, you know, and and visitors, everybody, you know, what's your favorite part of the museum? The Four Seasons, you know, hands down, it's the Four Seasons Room, and it really is a special room. And you're right, it's been around for uh, a long time. It was originally built the first museum. Um, that was attached to the back of the trading post, which was actually um, Henry Ayer's kind of storage <laughs> uh, uh, building because he was a collector and he had such a large collection that he built on to the back of the trading post to house that. And so when they donated everything to the Minnesota Historic Society in 59, he donated all his collections. They turned that into the first museum. And then that had the original Four Seasons room in it. After that, within about, I think, uh, the next 10 years after the room was built, then they put mannequins in there. And the cool story about the mannequins is that they were actually molded off of band members, uh, you know, from uh, the Mille Lacs band at the time. And so that's really a special room for people, especially if they're relatives of those people. You know, they they connect with that. They go in there and and I as actually gave a tour one time when when Debbie Mitchell was still um, alive and she was pointing out to her daughter that she's the young girl in the summer scene. So she was after my tour, she brought her daughter over and pointed out and said, that's me, you know, and uh, we used to have an interpreter that would say he gets to see his grandpa every day he comes to work because his grandpa was Frank Sam, who's the, the guy in the summer lodge. So people really connect with that. So it was housed in the, the old museum until 1992. That's when they tore the old museum down to break ground for the new museum that opened in 1996. And when they transferred the Four Seasons room from the old museum into the new museum, the cool thing they did about it is... Um, the painting that they included in the background. So when they put it in the new museum, they painted actual scenes from the area of where 
the sugar, like during the sugar bush camp, that's out on the powwow grounds. That's out on the point, right? The summer scene, you can see the vantage point of the island off the tip, you know, there on the lake. And the fall scene, scene I'm pretty sure, is Lake Ogeechee. I remember it, yeah, being very immersive. It's almost like a VR video game before that it even existed. Like just setting yourself on the scene and and really seeing how, uh, you know, our people used to used to live and still and to this day live. And so it's just great to see. Well, just to describe it a little bit more, you enter the room and it's it's dark. And around you, kind of in a circle, are the different settings for the scenes um, in a like a diorama. There's also sounds, right? Like nature sounds. Yeah, so it really does engage a lot of your senses because it has like the crackling of a fire, you know, because there's several fires throughout the scenes in the springtime that's boiling down the sap. You have the the waves kind of lapping in from the lake. So, you know, if you could picture yourself on the shores of the lake during the summer and netting and and fishing, you know, uh, the sounds of nature in the background. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today, we're speaking with Travis Zimmerman. Travis's family is from the Crane Clan of Grand Portage, and he's the site manager for the Mille Lacs Indian Museum and Trading Post. Travis also hosted Decoded Native Veterans in Minnesota who helped win World War II, which is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers. What's the relationship between the museum and trading post and the tribe? So there's been an ongoing, um, you know, not so much um, like a formal relationship. Mm -hmm. There has been different aspects. Like when the new museum was built, the Mille Lacs Band helped raise some money and and put some money towards the new museum um, when they had a, you know, big capital campaign type of thing. One of the interesting things is that the land that the museum is built on actually belongs to the band. Hmm. So the band has leased that land to the Minnesota Historical Society. And that lease agreement was signed in 1992. And it had like a sunset date saying in 50 years, this will revert back to the band. And, you know, so 50 years from then, from 92 would be 2042, which still seems like a long ways off, but, you know, we have thought about it, and there has been discussion about what does that mean? Um, you know, would it be the museum and the trading post? Would it be just the museum? Would it be the museum and the collection? You know, so there's some of those questions that we've kicked around uh, with the band. But the band, we do um, partner with them in a lot of different aspects. So when we do our storytelling They've come in as a partner for storytelling and, you know, we'll figure it out and say, hey, do you want to provide the meal? We'll get the storytelling, you know, mm. things like that. We host the Memorial Day powwow right on site, and that's in collaboration with the Mille Lacs Band Veterans Group. You know, so we've done a Memorial Day powwow every year um, since we opened the new museum on Memorial Day. And then, of course, the students from the school come. A lot of different departments shop at the trading post for gifts, you know, for different things and for uh, supplies they need for different programs, that sort of thing. So um, we work a lot with them. Like I said, there's not, you know, it's not any type of formal uh, uh, partnership that we have or anything with them, but we're always um, in partnership and working together on a lot of different areas. 
Can you talk a bit about the trading post and how it works with artists, especially in local artists? One of the things we do that most people aren't aware of is that we uh, we actually trade. So we still operate as a trading post. So if an artist come in, let's say, and they have um, a pair of moccasins that they that retails for $100, right? So instead of us buying it wholesale from them and then charging $100, so in that case, we might, you know, pay $60 for them and sell them for $100. They can trade retail for retail. So they can trade for $100 worth of supplies. And so we still sell the moccasins for $100. We trade with them and they get leather and beads so that they can keep making moccasins. It's kind of the whole, you know, um, reason behind doing that is so that we can work with artists and trade with them so they can get the supplies to continue making art, you know, that we can still turn around and sell. I mentioned the $60 and we sell for a hundred. That's one of the things that we do with handmade native products too. Most retail operations is it's keystone, right? You buy something for 50 cents, you sell it for a dollar, you double it. A lot of times even a little more. But what we do with native artists is if I buy it for 50 cents, I'm only going to mark it up 75 cents to sell it. With the the thought being that it'll move quicker and that there'll be um, a market for it so that it'll sell and they can continue making it. Or if we think it's worth a dollar, I'll give them 66% on that instead of half. Instead of giving them 50 cents and selling for a dollar, I'll give them 66 cents. And so that way, more of the money goes into the artist's pocket. Because that's really... We're a nonprofit. And so our bottom line isn't about making money. It's more about supporting artists. And so, you know, that's really what we're trying to to use that trading post for is to support their art. You know, we get um, between uh, probably close to 15, 20,000 visitors a year that come through the trading post. So people can really get exposure there with their artwork. And that's one of the things. Um, that we're trying to do more and more too is to have artists named by the products so they can know because that's a lot of times people want to know who's the artist, who made it, what tribe are they from, you know, what's their tribal affiliation, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And the more we can provide that for people. And, you know, some people say, well, the flip side of that, then they can just go around the trading post and buy from the artist. But it's like, well, that's okay. We're here to support the artist. Our bottom line is it's a nonprofit is that we want to support the artist. And that's why we try to have markets. So, you know, we, we that you were part of, we had the Native Music and Art Festival over Labor Day weekend um, to really try to get some artists out, get people to uh, come in and look at their work. And then that day, uh, there was some new artists that I bought stuff from that we brought into the trading post that day, you know. So, and I go to art markets and different events all over Minnesota and all over the United States to try to identify different artists. Because I think that's really important. Um, a lot of times these trading posts get caught up with like traders, like people that go around and buy from different people and then come and wow. sell it, right? So, well, you know, I'd rather cut out the middleman because then they're marking it up and then we mark it up. And then the artist is getting about as much as everybody else across mm-hmm. the board that marks it up, you know what I mean, type mm-hmm. of thing. So, and that's a cool thing about handmade stuff too is, you know, um, it's it's one of a kind stuff. You might be there one week and there might be something and 
the next week it's gone, but then that artist might come in and bring something, you know, totally different in. So it's always interesting. Just hearing you talk about it, you sound so passionate about what you do. Like what sparked your passion for history, for, for the journey that you've been on? So when I was five years old, my dad gave me an arrowhead. I grew up in Melrose, Minnesota. It's central Minnesota, a small German farming community, a couple thousand people. My dad was a teacher, and um, they were doing some road work along I-94 at the time that goes right by Melrose. And they found uh, they found arrowheads. And so they gave it to uh, one of the teachers there that was from Leech Lake. Um, but he wasn't native. He grew up in a native family. So he knew my dad was native, so he gave my dad this arrowhead. Well, when I was five years old, my dad gave me this arrowhead. He said, don't ever forget you're an Indian. Well, I'm growing up in central Minnesota. There's not an Indian (laughs) anywhere. You know, there's no Indians in Melrose. And okay, I won't forget, you know, but then it's kind of like, well, what is an Indian, right? So it just kind of fed that. And so growing up, you know, I just always uh, was very interested in, in American Indian history, American Indian art. My dad brought me back in the day. There used to be a powwow up in Duluth on Spirit Mountain. Hmm. It was called Nimiwin Powwow. And uh, when I was 10 years old, he brought me there. Actually, I met uh, Clyde Bellacourt was there giving a talk on uh, treaty rights. And I actually met Ignatia Broker and got her autograph. And if you don't know who Ignatia Broker is, she wrote the book Night Flying Woman. Oh, of course. And so I still have that autograph to this day from when I was 10 years old meeting her. And so I read that book. Subsequently, at the same age, 10 years old, I also read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which was a very difficult book to wrap my head around at 10 years old. Um, But yeah, so uh, it's just been kind of a lifelong journey of trying to figure out what it means to be Indian, right? (laughs) And so I got a degree in history when I went to, you know, uh, attended college. I went in the military after high school. Then went to St. John's, got a degree in history. Had no idea what I was going to do with it. I thought maybe I'd teach or write or I don't know, you know. And so ended up actually doing a lot of um, youth work. Uh, Worked for the Boys and Girls Club for a number of years. Started a Boys and Girls Club on the Malax Reservation in 1997. It was the first Boys and Girls Club in Minnesota on a reservation. Um, so I was the executive director of that for uh, four years. Moved down to the cities, worked at American Indian OIC, Division of Indian Works. Became uh, a foster parent for Indian kids. Uh, did a did a bunch of different different things down in the cities, and then. Uh, Started working for the Minnesota Historical Society in 2006. So I've been with them for 17 years now. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're speaking with Travis Zimmerman. Travis's family is from the Crane Clan of Grand Portage, and he's the site manager for the Malax Indian Museum and Trading Post. Travis also hosted Decoded, Native Veterans in Minnesota who helped win World War II, which was produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers. 
I just got to name drop a little bit, but I got to assume you've worked a bit with our uncle, Steve Primo, uh, you know, over the years. Could you talk a little bit about that relationship? Like uh, what, what uh, projects have you worked on? Yeah, Steve's great. Steve's awesome. Uh, worked with him a uh, couple different capacities. One of the, um, the coolest things that I think he did, uh, for us anyway, since I've been there at the museum, is we had a jingle dress exhibit there a couple years ago. And he did the jingle dress story in like a graphic, you know, graphic novel type of, uh, for our exhibit. And it was, it was just incredible. Um, and we still have it. So I want to like repurpose it because that exhibit came down after a couple of years, but I still want that story to be part of the museum because there's a small little panel when you go into the powwow section by the dancers that says the jingle dress originated here. But I want that story. I want the full story. And the cool thing about it, too, was he worked with um, McGizzy, uh, Mike Sullivan. And so it was bilingual. So that story was, you know, because the story was told to uh, Mike Sullivan by a Mick, Larry Smallwood. And so it was great to have a mixed story being illustrated by Steve Primo. You know what I mean? At our museum. So two Malax band members, um, you know, telling that story of the jingle dress. And so that was, you know, that was incredible. Uh, we do sell some of Steve's, um, we've gotten cards from him and some T-shirts and some different things like that through the years that he's come up with. Well, I'd like to ask about your own hosting of radio programs, Travis. Um, I know you did, you hosted Decoded, Untold Stories of Native Veterans in Minnesota, whose tribal languages helped win World War II. What was that like? How, what did you learn and um, how did you enjoy the process? Yeah, so um, Lori Stern actually approached me a couple years ago about, you know, doing that story. And so being a veteran, I, I come from a... a a long line of veterans in my family. Uh, my dad was a CB. Uh, all of his brothers uh, served in Vietnam. Uh, my brother uh, served National Guards and was uh, Soldier of the Year. So I went in the military just kind of, I don't know, on a whim, kind of more to pay for college than anything. But, uh, you know, also just because it seemed like it was a thing to do in our family. And so, so the story of natives and native servant in the military has always been one that I've um, always kind of just been fascinated by, you know, because American Indians represent, you know, in our serve in the military higher than any other numbers of, you know, any other ethnic groups. Um, I mean, they were serving in world war one before they were even U S citizens, a lot of them. Right. Um, so there's just been a long history of American Indian veterans. And so, a uh, number of years ago, I was at a language conference in Oklahoma, and I was talking to this guy from National Museum of the, the American Indian, Fred Nohitsky, and he had told me, he said, where are you from? And I said, Minnesota. And he said, well, we're looking for people from Minnesota because we found out there's code talkers from Minnesota, and we got this exhibit from the Smithsonian called Native Words, Native Warriors, and it's a traveling exhibit. And we wanted to go 
to states that we know and communities that we know code talkers came from. And he said, we know there was code talkers in Minnesota. So that led me to say, yeah, we would love to have the exhibit. Um, let's find that connection. So who were these code talkers, right? So I started doing research, found out there was a couple of Dakota guys, um, Ruben uh, St. Clair, a couple of Dakota guys that were uh, code talkers. I really haven't pinned down a lot of Ojibwe, at least then I hadn't pinned down a lot of Ojibwe code talkers. Like some people said that, you know, they knew that some Ojibwe used Ojibwe languages and transmitting messages and stuff like that. So anyway, when the exhibit came, we had it at the Minnesota History Center in St. Paul, and we had an opening ceremony, and we honored the families of the code talkers that we identified. Fast forward to a couple of years ago, Lori reached out to me and said, hey, I'm trying to do this story. And so I shared with her like my research and what I had found out. Well, in the meantime, we had identified that there was a family from Grand Portage that after uh, Lex Porter passed away, his family got invited out to do a ceremony out uh, recognizing code talkers out in Washington, D.C., and so they had never knew that their grandpa was a co-talker. And so when Lori asked me, she said, uh, you got a great, a great voice for, for radio. Would you want to narrate this? You know? So I was like, well, yeah, you know, that could be pretty cool. So I went ahead and, and not only was involved in kind of the research side of things, but then uh, doing the interview with freedom and then narrating it. So it was really, it was really kind of cool. I have yet to listen to the whole thing, but it was a lot of fun, and uh, it's something I'm hoping to do a little more of, and we'll we'll see how that goes. Do you have any, you know, final thoughts? Anything that we didn't bring up that you'd like to mention uh, before we say gigawaman? Well, can I put a shameless plug in for we're hiring? So if you would like to work at this incredible place I just described, part-time jobs and, and uh, available right now. So if anybody, you know, is out there is, is looking for a job and want to meet people from all over the world and work with some great staff and learn a lot, you know, uh, I learn every day on the job, you know, still, and I've been there for, for 15 years. And so, um, Another thing um, I forgot to mention, we do have a moccasin making workshop coming up at the end of the month, October 28th and 29th. And that class is being taught by Carol Hernandez, Milax Band Elder. And so if you're interested, you can sign up on our, our website. And yeah, just follow us on Facebook. We now got an Instagram page. We put a lot of really interesting content on there. We do this uh this day in history piece that gets pretty well received. Yeah, just open invitation for anybody and everybody to come and check us out. Miigwech, Travis. Thank you so much. Miigwech. Take care. Travis, that was amazing. <laughs> Such a great person. Yeah, and somebody who manages that Four Seasons room, you know, that's that was a big big part of uh, my life back in the day, you know, mm -hmm. seeing mm -hmm. seeing that, but it was great. 
Absolutely. So miigwech, Travis. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. Miigwech for listening. Gigawabman. Where Indigenous Voices Shine is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.